Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the Nope Too Creepy podcast. It's Friday, September 9th, and guess what? The Kickstarter for Encounters is still live. If you're thinking about pre-ordering your copy, or if you already secured your copy, I really, truly appreciate it. But let's be honest, I appreciate the ones who already placed their orders way more. Come on now, (laughs) that's a given, right? You are the true MVPs. Anyway, as promised, this episode will continue the whole theme of games and toys, and let me tell you, the second story will most likely take you by surprise. You've been warned. But before we get there, let's start things off with this first tale. Those of you who are familiar with the creepier parts of the internet most likely have come across certain games, which is just a code name for rituals, to be honest, posted across Reddit and other similar boards. The elevator game, the midnight game, anything involving a Ouija board, etc., etc. And dear listener, please do not ever play any of them. With that said, I've played the elevator game on several occasions, But please, do as I say and not as I do. Because if you do, you might face the same dilemma as the poor soul in this next story. Written by Reddit user, The Contempt Insomniac. Here is Never Play the Cemetery Game. During college, when my friends and I would drink... We'd talk about women and our relationships, but this particular night was different. We got really deep on the topic of death and mortality. Things like bucket lists and other goals in life were discussed, but we moved on to horror stories somehow. None of my friends knew this about me at the time, but I was deeply fascinated by everything paranormal. So, even in my inebriated state, I was deeply engaged. Soon, my friend Tony had the floor, and he talked about how he and his old friend found something on a message board called the Cemetery Game. He had this image saved on his phone, but it was extremely low quality. From what I could tell, it was a photo of some kind of cemetery at night. He continued, and said that by using the right ritual, you could, quote, summon any spirit. Unfortunately, most of my friends were too much in a stupor to give much attention, and with people making arrangements to get home not long after, we quickly moved on. I had plans to stay the night, and to my surprise, so had Tony. When the night was unwinding, and as people were sliding off to unconsciousness, I sparked up a conversation with Tony. I asked him if he thought the game was real, and he revealed the details. To say I discovered it wouldn't be the truth. My friend Alex showed me what looked to be a spam text message. I don't know its origin. I asked him to send it to me. When I saw where it linked, and the post, 
I was for sure a little scared. My friend told me he was going to perform the ritual, and I haven't heard from him since. He doesn't answer his texts, and doesn't have any living relatives to my knowledge. Tony then revealed that he had regretted sharing the information he had with the group, but in my intoxication, I pushed him to forward me the text. He was quite resistant at first, but after some convincing, he caved. He asked me to promise not to read the text until the next day. After he went to sleep, I just couldn't resist the urge to look at the text, and so that's exactly what I did. If you wish to see the other side, free of price, look no further. What is known as the cemetery game offers a solution. Please refer to the link. I clicked the link. It sent me to a shady looking message board, but more specifically to a post on that message board titled The Cemetery Game. I could see what Tony was talking about. Everything looked unnerving. From drawing strange shapes with chalk, using candles, and doing a chant. I noticed it also required something that had died during the same day as, and I quote, an offering. The next day, after I had sobered up, I walked home. I had work and school on my mind, but I recall it being an uneventful and somewhat nice walk. That is, until I spooked a raccoon into running into the street. When it happened, I was somewhat startled. He darted from a trash can and then ran into the street where he was hit by a truck. I witnessed the whole thing. I went to my apartment and reflected on what I had seen. I remembered the ritual and made the decision that I'd do it and use the raccoon's corpse. While I was confident no one would report me for collecting roadkill, I was cautious as to not draw attention to myself. I scraped the raccoon into a bag. I put it in my backyard as I went to local stores and bought the other items I would need for the ritual, and then waited until it was late. As it got darker, I decided I'd go to the second closest graveyard I knew. I chose the second closest to make sure I had a better chance of not getting caught, as it was more secluded. I put the raccoon and my items into my backpack. When I got to the graveyard, I realized that the gate had been locked. I squeezed the bag through the gate and managed to scale it. From there, I walked through the graveyard. I used a flashlight and navigated to the center. I then collected the essential objects from my bag, using the chalk I had bought. I recreated the odd shape to the best of my ability. I put the candles on the side of the object and lit them. I then dropped the raccoon from the bag and into the center of the objects I had drawn. I opened up the text and read aloud the chant. Once I finished, I waited for 10 seconds. 
I didn't encounter a single spirit, and I began to feel cheated. Then it hit me. It was like I got shocked by lightning and immediately blacked out. When I awoke, I was lying on the concrete. I got up and immediately noticed a body laying on the ground about 10 feet away from me. I walked up to it and couldn't believe it. I was staring at myself. I felt an immense panic as I processed things. I started considering what I would do. Then I noticed it. My body was still breathing. After some time, as I stood there, my body opened my eyes and sat up. My body stared at me. And then it got up and started walking away. Hey, where are you going? I yelled to whoever or whatever was controlling my body. But they didn't listen. I witnessed myself scale the gate and leave. With the sensation of true shock and panic, I hadn't even considered looking down at myself. That's when I recognized my body was pale and lacked any detail. I also noticed that I wasn't alone. Silhouettes and dark shapes populated the graveyard. I recognized that the light from the street lamps were mute. Yet, oddly, I could see through the darkness somewhat well. I tried to feel my new body, but was alarmed to realize my arms went through myself. As I walked to the graveyard, I couldn't stop the sensation that I was getting nasty looks. When I made it to the gate, I considered how I would get over. Then, when I put my hand up to touch the gate, my arm went directly through it. I passed through the gate and began walking down the street. I soon passed by a bar. I anticipated that maybe someone would see me and help me. It wasn't just that no one paid attention to me and everyone literally passed through me, but it was as if society had gotten up and left me beyond. I was now a bystander in the life I once called mine. I concluded that the only thing I could do was go back to my apartment and see if I could track myself down. To my dismay, when I got to my apartment, whoever was controlling my body was not there. I decided to wait there until daylight. I don't know if I was anticipating for my body to come back, but I certainly did not expect how weak I felt as the sun came up. The sun itself felt like a ton of bricks, and I would disappear the closer I got to direct sunlight. As I waited until the next night, I contemplated my options. I needed to either find my own body, or figure out a way to return myself to it. I remembered that Tony's friend was the one who sent him the original text. 
I decided I had to track him down. To do that, I concluded I needed to first find Tony and hope that he crossed paths with his friend. Once night rolled around and I regained my strength, I began my journey to Tony. As I walked the streets, I passed people unknowingly living with all kinds of entities. Some were entities I hadn't even imagined. They would have scared me if I were alive, but in the form I was in, I was essentially one of them. Tony's apartment was harder to find than I expected. He lived with his parents. I rarely went there unless I was with my friends while we picked him up. Tony was up for a few hours. As I followed him around, I just couldn't stop hoping he'd see me, but of course he never did. While he slept, I decided I'd wander the streets. I came back before the sun rose. I would do this for a few days, which then turned to weeks. In the new world I found myself in, I was alone. I knew my family was probably trying to contact me at this point, that my job had fired me, and that I would be late on my rent. It was also becoming more and more obvious that my body was becoming more transparent, much like my hope. While I walked the streets one night, I noticed a newspaper. I had seen many newspapers up to that point, but this one was different. Something immediately caught my attention. I couldn't pinpoint it at first, so I walked up to it. There was a face on the front page, but also a name. I went closer and noticed it said, Alec Binnard was arrested Tuesday in connection with multiple hit and runs. He was unable to remember even simple details of his life other than what happened in the previous month, according to Officer Dan Rinch. He's currently being held at the local jail and is in monitored isolation until he is sentenced. I waited until the next night and made my way to the jail. It wasn't easy to find him, but considering I could pass through walls, it made things much easier. I found him, sleeping in his cell. Soon, he rolled over, and his eyes lit up when he saw me but he immediately rolled back over. He pretended to sleep for a few hours. Then he finally rolled back over and spoke to me. Something tells me you want something. Can I help you? He questioned. You can see me. That's great. I responded. Then I continued. Do you know how I can get my body back? Unfortunately, I can't help you, unless he again spoke. What? I'll do anything, I replied. He sat fully up and he said, Anything you say. <laughs> the ritual can only be performed using a living participant. 
I know how to do it, but I require that you bring another spirit to me. Before I could respond, he continued, I need you to bring me to the last host of the body I currently reside in. They think I'm a murderous nut and want to lock me up until I begin to decompose again. I can't have that. I thought I liked this world, but I'm too far lost from it now. The spirit that was controlling Alec's body then told me where I could find him. Apparently, they had chatted after Alec lost his body. Then he said one thing before I left. I can see you're already starting to fade. That means you're losing energy. You're not there yet, but if you wait too long, you won't be able to return to your body. So be quick. I found Alec in a courtyard in the city. He was more faded and was spending time with other spirits. It was odd. Although I couldn't make out faces, I almost had an intuition of what spirits looked like in their mortal form. Of course, Alec didn't know who I was, and when I tried to explain to him what was going on, he had no inclination to help me. It didn't hit at first, but the realization that I could be like this forever started to weigh on me, and I fell to the ground. If I could cry, I'd be sobbing like a baby. Alex soon began comforting me. He then said he'd help me, but only to find my body. I instantly felt regret and confessed to Alec that I had made a deal to return him to his body. Alec seemed upset by the thought, but then told me that we could do one better. He had researched the ritual and how to return to his body, had he wanted to. We would need to find my body, and we'd have to get to the jail in time. We didn't have any leads, and could only travel at night, but we started by going back to the graveyard I lost my body in. Alec and I began going around, asking the entities that resided there if they had any information. One of the spirits recognized me and told us that the spirit who was in control of my body had wanted to fish again. There were many places to go fishing. We tried one each night for about a week. I was again losing hope, but Alec had one last location in mind. We went there and I could tell how weak and transparent I had become. There was a man-made shelter built out of sticks next to the lake that we had found. We eventually did find my body, but they wouldn't budge. They refused to go along with our plans. Nights passed as Alec and I sat near the lake, and I watched as my body fished. It was becoming obvious that if things were to continue, we might as well leave. Then Alec decided to go up to the spirit inhabiting my body by himself. I believed it was most likely pointless, as we had annoyed him for hours. 
unlike the many other times that we tried to interact with whoever was controlling my body, they seemed to actually react to what Alex said. Then something happened that I still think about to this day. He put down his rod as Alex sat next to him, and they chatted. For a good few minutes, this went on, and eventually, they both got up and walked over to me. Our plan was in motion, much like Alec had first intended, but we still weren't done. We managed to make it to the jail with just a little over an hour until sunlight. We made our way through the jail while my body was outside, not far from the cell with Alec's body. Before we got to the cell, I stopped Alec and asked him two questions. Alec, why don't you want to live? And what did you tell my body? Alec stopped and opened up. To be honest, I was more miserable alive than dead. I can be with my family now. The same goes for the spirits controlling our bodies. But it's different for you. You have a life to live. You aren't ready to exist like this. Now let's go. What Alec failed to tell me is that he timed everything perfectly so that he could no longer transfer bodies. When he went to the cell, it was obvious he didn't know what day it was. He continued on with the ritual. He said the chant while we stood there. Then, it happened again. Like a shock of lightning, I blacked out and awoke outside of the jail. I eventually was able to return to my life, though it had a few problems. Considering I had a missing persons report, I had to make up a story that it was on purpose. I got back in touch with my family, but that did not solve my issues. I've never truly felt reconnected since I played the cemetery game. While I walk the streets, I think of my past experiences and what it all means. I hear Alec's name often. The spirit who inhabits his body is often referenced in the local media as being a special case lunatic. He's locked up for good, and I'll probably never see him in person again. But every time I think of him, I get the unnerving feeling that at some point, I will return to my prior state, and I don't take things for granted. So, even though I urged you all to not partake in things like that, I should say, I'm planning on heading to a local haunted cemetery with some friends very soon. We're gonna go there at night and play a game, but it's not THE cemetery game. No, 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 no. We're not crazy. We're going to be playing Encounters, of course. We're going to document the night in a vlog which will be split into two parts. The first half will be on the Nope Too Creepy YouTube channel, and the second on the channel for Enkidu Interactive. That's the name of the game company I started, for those of you who are wondering. Again, please do as I say and not as I do. 
Anyway, this next story, um, I don't want to say too much, but just prepare yourselves. I'll try to say as little as possible. All you need to know is that a loving father reluctantly buys his young daughter a creepy antique doll. If you want to know what happens next, just kick back and relax. Written by Reddit user Bince82, I present The Doll. The first time my daughter, Nancy, saw the doll, it was love at first sight. I thought the thing was a hideous monstrosity. We were on vacation in upstate New York, just south of the Adirondacks, and antique shops were plentiful in the small, quaint towns of the Northeast American woods. On the drive up to our cabin, we'd stop by each shop, and we'd see our fair share of old contraptions, stamps, pictures, statues, but the doll was something we'd never seen before. The shopkeeper indicated it was one of a kind. An antique German papier-mâché Mueller Strasburger doll. Standing tall at 2.5 feet against a support stand. The doll appeared as a young boy with curly blonde hair but was adorned in a flowing white blouse and blue dress. The head, neck, and shoulders were made of a seamless papier-mâché layer, then another section for the forearms to hands, while the torso and certain joints like the hips, knees, and elbows were filled with stuffing, allowing you to manipulate the doll into a sitting position or put its hands on its lap. Do yourself a favor and do not Google this type of doll if you're alone right now. I knew I was done for when my daughter ran to the doll and exclaimed, Your name is George. We're going to be best friends forever. The thing is, I had promised Nancy that she could pick out one toy on this trip, and I tried to posture that we couldn't fit the doll into the car, that it was too expensive, $300 by the way, but immediately the shopkeeper swept in. Once a girl and a doll are matched, there is no undoing that bond, he said with a knowing smile. Sorry, but $300 is a bit too steep. Like I said, there's no undoing the bond, and I won't get in the way of that. How about $100? I shook my head. Still too much. It was made in the 19th century. You could easily resell it for $200. No, thank you. Okay, Nancy, we gotta get going. I'll sell it for $60. I'll even load it into the car for you. As hideous as the thing was, I couldn't say no to the eager expression my daughter made at that low offer. At my daughter's request, the shopkeeper loaded Georgie the doll into the seat next to hers 
and clipped the seatbelt. Just drive carefully, Georgie is fragile, said the shopkeeper as we departed, giving a final knock on the window as Nancy waved. What ensued in the car was two hours of my precious daughter carrying a one-sided conversation with her new best friend forever, Georgie. All the while, I'd peer back at them in the rearview mirror, shuddering any time I made eye contact with those lifeless papier-mâché eyes. The cabin I had rented for the weekend had a beautiful lake view, but Nancy wanted nothing more than to have a tea party with Georgie. So I reluctantly took the doll out of the back seat and held it out at arm's length, bringing it to the room. At two and a half feet tall, its gangly legs swayed with each of my steps, and I plopped it on the floor into a sitting position. I could have sworn I heard it grunt when I picked the thing up, but then again, I'm 40 years old, and I grunt from getting up from a chair. So I spent the evening having a tea party with Nancy and Georgie, and let me tell you, my daughter had a blast. I tried my best not to look at Georgie, as even a glimpse of this papier-mâché thing sent a shiver down my spine. But, of course, it was impolite not to look at someone when fancily cheersing teacups. Pinkies out, of course. At night, the crickets were loud and reminded us of our isolation. Nancy insisted Georgie sleep in bed with her, but I convinced her that it was a bad idea because of the fragility of the doll, and better it laid on the floor next to the bed. Daddy? Yes, dear? Are there bears in these woods? Oh, yeah, most certainly. Um, can bears open doors? Hmm, <laughs> well, I suppose they could. Even locked doors? No, not locked doors. Don't you worry. There are no bears getting in here. And besides, Georgie and I will protect you. But you said Georgie was so fragile I couldn't even sleep with him. And Daddy, you're strong, but I don't think you can beat up a bear if it's a big one. Well, you're right about that. So that night, I ended up dragging the couch right up against the front door, then stacked chairs on top of that just to keep us safe from the bears. I woke up in the middle of the night to ragged breathing, and I shot up in my bed immediately. I've heard my daughter's congestion before, and this was not it. It almost sounded like a sick, wheezing old man on his deathbed. The problem was that it seemed to be synchronized with my daughter's breathing, so I slowly got out of bed and crept towards Nancy. The wheezing was getting louder as I got closer. I slowly raised my hand to my daughter's nose and with nimble fingers pinched her nose closed 
the raspy breathing continued. But now I could tell it was coming from the side of the bed. I flung the light on and leapt over the bed, and the raspy breathing stopped. And there was Georgie, still laying where I had left him. I was deathly silent then, staring intently at that pale, light, peach-colored paper mache and again at those damn, lifeless blue eyes, and that stupid, frilly blouse. I moved in closer, ready to rip this thing to shreds if I even saw a flutter of movement. Daddy? Oh dear God! I must have jumped five feet in the air. Daddy, are you okay? There's no bear, right? I was not okay. Yeah, uh, I'm okay. It's nothing. Let's just go back to sleep. I turned off the lights and laid awake as long as I could, but the raspy breathing never returned. The rest of the trip went well. Of course, we had to take Georgie everywhere we went, and for the next few nights, I had to perform the ritual of barricading the door to protect us all from the bears. At long last, it was time to go, and we were all packed up. As I pulled away from our cabin, I heard Nancy say, Say bye-bye to our cabin, Georgie. And when I looked in the rearview mirror, I saw the doll was looking out the window. Nancy, did you move the doll's head? Silly daddy, Georgie can look outside by himself. Oh, yes, of course. And how is that exactly? Well, because Georgie is alive. Goosebumps overwhelmed me, and I looked at my rearview mirror again. The doll was still motionless, looking out the window. Alive. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Silly daddy. As I turned onto the freeway that would get us home, I thought I caught a glimpse of the antique shop owner in a car a few dozen feet behind me, but the vehicle drove along the local roads and I didn't quite get a good look. By the time we got home, Nancy was asleep, so I unbuckled her and carried her to bed. I looked out of the window to the driveway and I saw Georgie's curly blonde hair, face still blankly looking out the window. I briefly considered bringing him inside too, but without Nancy advocating for him, I simply locked the car doors with my key fob. Nighty night, Georgie. I awoke to a car alarm, and I knew immediately it was mine. I darted out of bed, stumbled down the stairs, and threw open the floodlights to my driveway. I heard a door shut as I got to my front door and barreled through into the cold night. 
There sat Georgie, strapped in his seatbelt, staring at me with those cursed blank blue eyes, with the car alarm blaring in suburbia at two in the morning. I pressed the lock button on my key fob and the alarm stopped. After a few circles of my car and nothing but the chilly wind accompanying me, I muttered a curse and went back inside. It was probably just a raccoon or a cat that jumped on my car. Probably. The following morning, while I'm making blueberry pancakes, the first thing I get from Nancy when she comes down was, Where's Georgie? Oh, he told me he wanted to sleep in the car. Nancy giggled. Silly daddy. Georgie only talks to me, not you. Oh, really? Yeah, dada. And what does he say? By then, she was already hooked on the cartoons that she had put on. Does he say he likes blueberry pancakes? No response. When breakfast was ready, and at Nancy's request, I lugged Georgie back into the house and sat it at the table. Nancy gave Georgie a big hug. Apparently, he did like pancakes, according to her, so I put a napkin on him as a bib. After breakfast, I went back to whatever adult bullshit I had slated for the day, while Nancy played school teacher with Georgie as the student. That night, Nancy wanted me to prop Georgie up in his stand, so he could stand around with her as she did her, quote, exercises, which was just her dancing around to Kids Bop on YouTube. Damn it, did this doll look even creepier in a standing position. I made a mental note to look up why boy dolls would be wearing a blouse and a dress. Maybe it was a 19th century German thing. I also googled the price of one of these things, because I was going to sell that shit to a museum the first second Nancy was off of it. And sure enough, $250 to $300 was the price range. So the antique dealer did not rip me off after all. For bedtime, Nancy asked me to put Georgie in his stand by her bed so he could watch over her as she slept, to which I obliged. As I lay falling asleep in my bed, I heard Nancy talking to Georgie, talking to it about her day, how much fun she had, all the things they would do tomorrow. And just as I was about to fall asleep, I heard her call out to me, Daddy, can you lay down Georgie instead? He's tired. I trudged over to her room, dead exhausted. Sure thing, sweetheart, but please go to sleep. We had a long vacation and you need to rest before school tomorrow, and I have work. I picked Georgie up from his stand and laid him down next to Nancy's bed. 
I tucked the stand into the corner of the room before heading back to my bed and conking out. I shot up in my bed, still only half awake, but my eyes were searching frantically in the dark. What was it that had woken me up? Before having a kid, I had been such a deep sleeper, but now my brain had trained me to wake up to anything out of the ordinary. I thought I heard a rustle, and come to think of it, had I closed my door that far towards the frame? I almost always left it open enough to be able to peer down the hall to see my daughter's door. Then again, I had been very tired. I checked my phone. 2.30 a.m. I crept to my door and slowly swung it open. Of course, like an idiot, I banged my knee with a thud. So much for stealth. I opened my door all the way. And there was Georgie, standing in the hall, motionless, and facing me with that damned blank stare. Oh, Nancy, I muttered. I walked to Georgie, lifted it up with my right arm, and then went to grab the stand with my left. But the stand was not there. Confused, I held Georgie out and placed it back onto his feet, steadied him, and let go. As before, the unbalanced doll slowly started to fall back, and I steadied it again, trying to find the balance point Nancy had apparently found. I tried several times, but to no avail. I considered that this doll might have some underlying wire under its stuffing in its legs to help it stand on its own, and I pinched several sections of the thighs and calves and felt some rods, but when I tried to bend them, they wouldn't budge, except at the knees, but even then it felt rigid and difficult to manipulate. I made my way up the thigh, thinking maybe the hip joint was the best way to reposition the rods. There was some movement, but still it felt stiff. I was just about to give up and throw the thing to the side, but then I brushed up against something with my elbow that had no right being there. I paused, then brought my right hand down and confirmed. I felt genitals. And at that, the doll came alive. Get the fuck off me, you shit! It howled with its raspy, sick voice, its stale, rotten breath invading my nostrils. Georgie viciously kicked, screamed, grabbed fistfuls of my hair, and started to rip away. All I could do was try to throw it off of me, but this little bastard was strong, and I hurled us to the ground, rolling along the floor towards the stairs. Fuck you! Fuck you! It kept shouting as we fell down the stairs together. I landed on the doll at the base of the stairs. 
I put my arm around its paper mache throat and began to crush through it, my hands breaking the fragile material and feeling a warm, pulsing neck. Georgie began to fight back, his thumbs digging into my eyes with inhuman strength. I screamed but kept squeezing and stood up, stumbling into the kitchen. I thrust my left hand to the counter until I found the handle to my chef's knife and plunged the blade into Georgie's torso over and over. Stuffing flew into the air with each stab and I did not stop. After about 15 stabs, I saw the doll's clothing turn a deep red, the thing now motionless, letting out small gurgles. I let go of the knife and sat back, heaving heavy breaths into my lungs. I looked up and saw my daughter's face frozen in fear. She had witnessed the whole thing. Blood slowly pooled around the doll's body. After a brief moment of silence, Nancy screamed. It was 6 a.m. and quiet in the police station. I sat before two detectives and a police officer from upstate New York and had just finished my story for the fifth time. Each time they pressed me for as much detail as possible. Normally, no way in hell could you believe that story, but I called 911 and kept my eyes on that damn dead bloody doll while shielding and consoling Nancy until the cops arrived. No way was I allowing for any of that disappearing monster bullshit. Do you recognize this man? The upstate New York policeman pushed forward a picture of a middle-aged balding man. Yeah, he's the antique shop guy. The one that sold you this doll? The very same. Sold it for $60 instead of the original $300. The policeman and detectives looked at each other. Did they actually believe my story? Sorry, I need to know what's going on, I said. Was this some type of voodoo shit or a demon doll or... What about this picture? This time, one of the detectives pushed it forward. It was the antique shop owner again, and I almost dismissed it and looked away with a nod. But then I saw something perched on his shoulder. They've been running this scam for years, he said. The same story has been popping up for years, but we haven't had any hard evidence till now. Antique shop owner pushes the doll on vacationers that look like they had some money, and the following day, all their valuables are gone, plus the antique doll, of course. I scowled and shook my head. You see... This man is Igor Balkzik, he said, pointing to the shopkeeper's shoulder. I looked closer. The small figure was emaciated, eyes sunken in, an odd smile on his narrow face, sitting comfortably on the shop owner's shoulder.
his stick legs dangling over onto the shopkeeper's chest. Igor is what is known as a primordial dwarf. Extremely rare. He's only about 25 inches tall. I stared in disbelief. Just enough to fit in the doll's suit. My hands covered my mouth. If you hadn't barricaded your cabin door to protect against bears, you would have been cleaned out overnight. And then, on your first night back, you locked him in your car. So, really, this past night was his only opportunity to escape. The other detective spoke. As we confirmed, a phone call to the antique shop was registered coming out of your house. Around midnight, give or take. He was going to clean you out right then and there and get picked up. I turned and looked across the hall into the other office. The one where Nancy and the child psychologist were talking. She seemed fine, at least from the back of her head. I just didn't know if I would ever get another wink of sleep again. Your daughter will be okay. It'll take time for both of you to recover. We're really sorry that this happened to you. Rest easy. We have a bad man behind bars, and another bad man that you rightfully killed in self-defense. The officer and the detectives stood up. My suggestion personally? How about you stay away from buying any new dolls in the next couple of years? I stood up, never keeping my eyes off of Nancy. Detective, I'm never buying another fucking doll ever again. Thank you for joining me in this episode of the Nope Too Creepy podcast. If you're interested in learning more about either of the authors, links to connect with them can be found in the show notes. Before we end this episode, I want to make one more shameless plug for Encounters, the cryptid hunting game. A link to the Kickstarter can be found in the show notes. And also, if you're listening on YouTube, keep an eye out for the video where we play our own version of a cemetery game, which should be fun, or, or not. Either way, it's going to be entertaining for you at home. Coming soon. Until next time, this is your host, Dan David. Reminding you all to stay safe out there. I'll be seeing you in the next episode. Nope.